Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, Undying Light listeners. I am your host, Pastor Alex, and we are back at it once again with another new episode in our Lutheran and Reformed series. Now, this was the original title of this series that we started way back earlier this year when we decided to uh, start working ourselves through the theology of the Lutheran Church. And we started with uh, Augsburg Confession, and we worked ourselves through the history and the building up to, uh, you know, the the writing of the Confession, and then the establishment of the Book of Concord, and all of the things that came through it. So, if you're interested in all that, those episodes are available now to be listened to um, from months back. So you have to probably scroll down a little bit because we produce two we- two episodes a week, and we are going strong. So. We went through the whole book of Concord, really hitting a lot of the high points. We didn't read every single line in the book of Concord, but we did quite a bit. And then we transitioned to the sacrament series where we focused on the Lutheran perspective of baptism. And then we focused on the Lutheran's view of the Lord's Supper. And intermingled with that, we talked very briefly about other views Uh, the Protestant views and Roman Catholic and things like that on those two sacraments. And now, as we started last week, we are working ourselves through some of the major differences and similarities between the Reformed and the Lutheran faith. And I hope that you will enjoy this series. Uh, And I, like I mentioned last week, go pick up between Wittenberg and Geneva. It's probably one of the easiest uh, and best written books that present both both sides uh, of the coin, essentially. And so they, they take the Lutheran faith, and then they take the Reformed faith, and what they view over certain concepts of theology, and they you know write it out for you to uh, be able to you know, put the two side by side and see where your, your hermeneutical approach leads you or wherever your presuppositions have led you to. And even if you're a staunch Calvinist or a staunch Presbyterian or you're, you know, you're really firm on those beliefs, that's great. But I do 
recommend picking this book up because it helps to give a deeper understanding to the Lutheran faith more so than just listening to this show or or just reading something else that's out there because what it'll do is it'll say this is what the Lutherans believe and now this is what the the, the Reformed think and here's where the similarities and the differences come over. And so it helps us to just kind of get a, you know, maybe a book or a graph or some sort that really detail that out and maybe someday if I have the time I can draw up a graph and, you know, write out some of the major differences and similarities, but that's for time down the road. So it's a Tuesday, which means we don't really do any introductions or commercials. We just dig into the content and uh, we've got quite a bit to pick up today and go with. And so I'm going to try and just dig right into it. But I do want to make a note I mentioned. Uh, so I record two, two episodes every week um, as they get released. And I'm a couple of weeks ahead on this one. And, and I'm only, I think I'm four ahead on this one and I'm only two ahead on my Friday show. So the Friday show that I just recorded will air a week or two before, or a couple of weeks before this one will air. And on that one, I had mentioned that I'm going to try and divvy up some commercials that I, of the things that I promote on this show. And I'm going to uh, have them kind of situated within the Tuesday show and the Friday show but I'm not going to dedicate the opening 10 minutes anymore of Friday's show to that stuff. So they'll be precise and straight to the point commercials. And occasionally I might rabbit trail and talk about something depending on my mood, but we will, we will set those to be quick and concise. And then we will put those, you know, uh, short little things or short little commercials, if you would, in the Tuesday and Friday show, but they will not be time consuming. I just want to remind you, and for those who are new listening to the show, uh, what we do and have to offer mostly around patron being the supporting premise to this show and keeping the show going, patron.com forward slash undying light and logos, which is the software I'm using for everything, logos.com forward slash undying light. So that's the, the, the get up here, if you would. Uh, we're going to dig into chapter two. Uh, between Wittenberg and Geneva, and we're going to highlight some of the major points in this chapter. Again, we will not read this verbatim because it's something like, uh, where are we at? We start at 31 and we go all the way through uh, 58. So a considerable chunk of reading to do. We will not do that, but we will discuss uh, some of the big points that this chapter uh, highlights. Again, this book is between Wittenberg and Geneva. And you can pick it up on pretty much any platform that sells books, uh, at least the theological books. And, and I highly recommend it because, as I mentioned early in the show, it helps us to decipher between the two views and hopefully answer any of these questions. Because, again, I'm not reading all of this and I'm only touching these high level views. And we'll, we'll dig into some of the concepts a little bit, but, but there might be some questions or maybe uh, something that just quite wasn't answered for you. Grab the book, read it, and please reach out to me, Undying Light Ministries, on, on social media. You can send us emails, undyinglightministries at gmail.com. You can hit me up on Instagram on my personal page, quorum.dale.life, and you can ask me any question, and, I, and, I'll, and I'll try my best to answer it for you. And if I can't find you an answer, I will find you hopefully a source of material that will get you an answer. So we begin with Law and Gospel. So we talked a little bit about last week. Uh, the uh, interpretation of scripture and the hermeneutical application being applied to the Lutheran and to the Reformed faith. And we talked pretty briefly 
about the law and gospel aspect of the Lutheran faith. That is how we read scripture. And to summarize that into a very quick point, we read scripture in the context of, is this passage giving me a law, a command, or is it giving me the gospel, a promise? So law, gospel. So uh, reading the Torah, you're going to see a lot of commands by God. When he tells Abraham, go to this land, when he tells uh, Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, when he goes to Moses and tells him, go to Pharaoh and do these things. Then he says, go up to Mount Sinai. Here's these 10 commandments. And then he's going to establish the Levitical law, the ceremonial law and all that stuff. All of those things are obviously law because they're commands by God. But then we also have the gospel being saturated throughout the old Testament, especially in the Torah that we see that Isaac instead wasn't sacrificed, but a ram was provided. And we know that I, uh, Abraham recognizes the ram as being the uh, ram that God will provide as the ultimate sacrifice. And we know that we see this beautiful story laid out through all of scripture in the context of the gospel. And so it doesn't take, it, it doesn't take a lot of work uh, to read a passage and to apply either law or gospel to it. In fact, you can do both in the passage because you'll see that underneath the command is always the promise. Because it's the promise that comes first. That's the foundation to all of what God has commanded us to do. And then the law is there to to keep us essentially within the boundaries that God has established and to keep us focused on pursuing his righteousness. Meanwhile, understanding that we and ourselves will never be able to adhere to the law fully. Therefore, we have the gospel to fall back on. So, law gospel. At the very heart of the Protestantism, both Lutheran and Reformed, lies the distinction between law and gospel. The tension between the two shapes everything, from the interpretation of Scripture to preaching and to the practical practical understanding of the Christian life. It points to the two most basic aspects of God's relationship to his creatures. He commands them as their Lord and Savior to be holy as he is holy, and he promises them that he has acted on their behalf in Christ to fulfill his command that all they... Uh, that all they therefore need to do is trust in that promise. The law convicts me of my sin. The gospel gives me Christ and speaks peace to my soul. This distinction is one of the basic elements of theology that gives Christianity and the Christian doctrine an extra central urgency. We learn the facts of the gospels, the events of Jesus life and the actions of God in history without ever understanding that these are not uh, allegorious to say the deeds of Napoleon. Napoleon's life is interesting and historically significant, but it does not address us in any urgent way or make any demands on us. Christianity, however, is deeply ex- existential and confrontational in every essence. God's word commands and God's word promises. It addresses us personally and demands a response. On this point, the Lutherans and the Reformed agree and have yet much to say. So in the context, uh, I've never heard a, a Reformed person uh, disagree with the Lutheran apo- approach to law gospel distinction. The I think the major difference that we will see is how the reading of Scripture is then correlated into the sermons being preached by the pastors. So to start with, We have the long gospel in the Lutheran tradition. As a friar, Luther heard God speaking from the passages of scripture 
almost without an exceptional exception in a demanding voice. He experienced God's prescriptions for his daily behavior and attitude as requirements for performance necessary to please God sufficiently and to merit grace needed to produce truly worthy good works. His instructors taught him that his eternal destiny de- uh, depended on producing these works. As Luther delved deeper into scripture, uh, he read Augustine's anti-Pelagian writings and engaged in devotional writings of the mystical monastic piety fostered by Johannes Toller and others and went through what the psalmists, Paul, and other biblical writers had written. He had come to see that God was telling him two quite different things from what he has done for his human creatures as creator and restorer of life and second, what he expects of the human creatures to be and do. So this is the two messages of scripture that Luther gives us alongside reading God's plan for human creatures performance. His word also tells the readers about God's own activity. Luther found the center of scripture and the benefits of or blessings it conveys, which arise out of God's intervention in the world to rescue sinners from their own, uh, from their own missing of his mark or goal for human life and to restore them to the kind of human lives he had designed for them in the first place. Luther presumed the biblical narrative begins with God's gracious and unconditional gift of life to human creatures as he shaped Adam and Eve from the dust of the earth and breathed into them his, this gift. This, uh, the creature, the creative word that was first human being that made the first human beings did not demand, but simply bestowed life. God was acting totally apart from any human assistance, contribution, condition, or merit along with the creative word. Uh, and the core identity of God's child and it uh, that it is bestowed upon God's plan or design for human living, which sets the standards for guiding and evaluating human, for human performance. So although Luther recognizes the biblical usage of several Hebrew and Greek terms for law, embraces the number of definitions he labeled as law, this design for human life that expresses God's intent and expectation expectations for the attitudes and actions of the human creatures. Likewise, he recognized the gospel can, uh, can embrace everything Mark has to tell about Jesus and said and did as Mark one, one says. So the biggest thing, you know, if we take what Luther's writing and pushing, uh, in his, you know, conditions, we have to understand the context to the Lutheran, uh, reformation. And we know that Luther began essentially the, the spark. He, he, he ignited the Reformation in 1517 when he nailed the 95 Theses to the door in Wittenberg. From there, Luther's entire approach was to uh, draw the Catholic Church back to Scripture. His intentions were not to reform the entire church and move far away from the Catholicistic uh, view of scripture, but to draw the Catholic church back to the view and understanding of scripture as the apostles and early church fathers had written. And when Luther had nailed those to the door uh, in Wittenberg, he was expecting a debate, a, you know, a discussion. Cause that's how they, you know, it was like their message board. They, he had gone and expected 
somebody to come and, and talk with him, debate him, challenge him, and eventually listen to his pleas. When the church didn't respond, Luther continues to write and study and, and research and preach, teach, and and all this over the next few years. And then it is only in 1521 at the Diet of Worms when he is summoned to answer to the Roman Catholic Church about his teachings. And to which it is established that the Roman Catholic Church had no desire to listen or adhere to anything that Luther was saying. And so the draw from Luther, and this is just a very quick overview of those first few years. Um, I've got a great book by James Cattleston if you want to go read it on Luther's life. Um, but it, it in that framework, when we start to unpack how Luther approached script, uh, Scripture, we first see it uh, that we that Luther thinks God is an angry God, uh, full of hatred, and despises his creation. And that is Luther's initial take on Scripture. And it's not until shortly before 1517 that he starts to understand the the differences between law and gospel, the differences between the commands that God has established in Scripture and the promises. And so this was the entire foundation to the Lutheran faith was the preaching and teaching of uh, law gospel. And it draws to question this concept of penance and repentance because the Roman Catholic Church required you to do certain penances upon the confession of sin. And uh, you might hear it today, you know, go and say 30 Hail Marys or go and, you know, do X, Y, and Z. Uh, so Luther has an approach on this. In the 1510s, Luther slowly sorted out these two these two oriented messages as he interpreted the Psalms and the Pauline epistles, particularly Romans and Galatians. On a practical level, his struggle took place within the context of his pastoral concerns about the use of the sacrament of penance. In his personal experience, he gleamed only discouragement and despair from the sacrament's insistence and enumeration of mortal sins to qualify one's self for forgiveness. So basically to summarize his view, Luther was seeing that the penance that the Roman Catholic church had established as a sacrament was then used to uh, essentially be the demonstration of repentance. It was the, it was, you must do these things in order to be right with God. And again, what it leads to is a works based system where you must behave, you must act, you must react in a certain manner. And that didn't cope well with Luther as he was reading through Paul's epistles, especially Galatians and Romans. So when we get to this concept of repentance, it's an interesting concept for the Lutherans uh, because what we understand is being the work of salvation. That is God's work. It's not our own. And when Luther realizes this, his entire life is transformed. Luther's fear of not enumerating all of his mortal sins and his conviction that his performance uh, of the satisfactions demanded after the absolution were, was not pure and sufficient to put him right with God changed to relief and joy. So the other aspect to the penance was it was the marking of confession that every single sin that you had acknowledged of, you must come and confess and then pay uh, a price for it. Similar to the Jewish sacrificial system in the Old Testament. So he came to see that this entire relationship which got with God sprang from 
and was sustained by the absolution that conveyed forgiveness of sins and all that the other benefits won for him by Jesus Christ. Like most of his contemporaries, Luther used this particular word for penance for the sacrament of penance, general acts of repentance, and the attitude of repentance, the desire to turn from sin to God. From Toller's circle, he had learned that God's law casts sinners into despair and thus drives them to Christ as the only Savior. Therefore, his small catechism teaches that baptism is one form of God's decisive promise to the believer's Lord that it established their relationship and the certainty of his saying so. If Paul's description of baptism as the burial of believers' sins and the resurrection of the new life in Christ's footsteps is indicated in Romans 6, 3-11 and Colossians 2, 11-15, Luther also saw the basis for the Holy Spirit's daily forgiving of sins and restoring to righteousness. So Luther's view is solely this. It's very monergistic. It is uh, 100% God doing the saving, and the Reformed would agree with that. But I think sometimes where the differences, at least in the modern reform camps, will come is our understanding of repentance. It means we both acknowledge it to mean the same thing, but who does the action of it is where we differ. Lutherans believe that it is God turning us from sin, whereas the Reformed will believe that it is us turning from sin. It is our, it is our need or our work. So we get into, you know, again, this, this book is quite detailed and we have a, a lot of uh, topics we're not going to get into, but I, I do advise you to go read it. But I do want to just touch base on some of the, the, the major things that often have question, especially the uses of the law. Luther's understanding of the law and its accusation against sinners must be interpreted in light of his anthropological analysis of being human and understanding of sin. The law's content is summarized in the Ten Commandments that Luther held. Indeed, earlier in his career, he was combating the medieval views that fulfilling divine and ecclesiastical laws contributed in the same way to salvation and a similar legalism as a former colleague, Andreas, Andreas uh, Badenisten von Karlstand. Luther perceived the same dangerous religious pattern in both scholastic theology and Karlstand. Both regarded human performance based on the demands of God's law and the key to the relationship between God and human creatures. In this context, Luther argues that even the Ten Commandments, which God gave Israel after leading his people out of Egypt in Exodus 20, are binding to Gentiles only because they agree with the New Testament and natural law, in which God sets forth his plan for all human life. He later abandons any emphasis on this point, and indeed, for instance, in his catechisms, Use the Decalogue as the basics for sketching what God expects of his creatures according to the desire for human life. The content of the law is precisely those commands that God gave for all people to observe. This content goes beyond the words of the Ten Commandments or any specific Bible passage, though it is expressed in Scripture in a reliable form. The law is a gift from God, Luther taught, and it helps preserve older order in the affairs of the world and leads sinners to despair what that prepares them to be drawn to Christ. Some medieval theologians have spoken of the uses of law, but such a categorization uh, was not an axiomatic element to the scholastic treatments of the law. In 1535, Luther's co uh, colleague, Philip Melanchthon, had fashioned a third use of the law while struggling 
with colleagues in Wittenberg assistance that the law continues to function in the Christian life. This, that principle has been challenged by one of Melanchthon's and Luther's brightest students, Johann Agricola, who had the impression that the gospel works both in command and promises in believers' lives. Luther and Melanchthon also rejected this as a confession of law gospel and adamantly maintained that Christians need the disciplining force of God's law, its call to repentance, and its instruction for the details of faithful living. So it wasn't until Melanchthon comes on the scope to uh, start to decipher the third use of the law. And uh, we'll probably do a more in-depth dive after the series on uh, on these particular topics from the Lutheran perspective as you know, we're trying to use this show to hit both the high points between Lutheran and Reformed. Um, but I do want to come back on that concept and really dig into the, the uses of the law from the Lutheran perspective. So let's jump over to the Reformed traditions here, and we'll wrap out the show with that. One of the most interesting and significant doctrinal points for understanding the relationship between Lutheran theology and the Reformed theology is the connection between law and gospel. It is here that the Reformed dependence on Luther's thinking can be clearly discerned, but is also where its independence from him is very noticeable. Certainly, as we note in the chapter on justification and sanctification, which we will get to later, there is considerable overlap between Lutherans and Reformed on issues of personal salvation, particularly in the emphasis on the need of faith and repentance. But there's also differences, and these are most noticeable in the understanding of the law. This is perhaps inevitable given the complexity of the connecting the big, uh, biblical teachings of justification and with New, New Testament mandates, particularly in Paul's letters. For Christians to show forth their identity in Christ in a public and practical ways. The divisions of the law, the Reformed typically divide the Old Testament into three categories, moral, ceremonial, and civil. The moral law was embedded, embodied in the Decalogue. The Reformed regard this as, a treat, as teaching transcendent mortal truths applicable to human beings in general and not simply to, specify, or to specific people of Israel. Uh, prior to the coming of Christ. And in addition to this, there are also the <clears throat> ceremonial laws pertaining to the sacrificial system and pointing out that both to and pointing both to Christ and to other certain moral obligations. Finally, there are the civil laws pertaining to the political administration of the ancient Israel. Of these three divisions, the latter two have been abrogated with the coming of Christ. The ceremonial law in particular found its fulfillment in Christ because its sacrifices and rituals were a types of his life and work. They pointed forward to him, giving the people of Israel indication of God's overall redemptive plan. So that is how the Reformed uh, divvy up the concepts of the law from the Old Testament. So then there's a whole scope, and we'll, we'll probably do a series on this, uh, Law Gospel Divisions, because... There's a lot that is even written here on the reformed views of the first and third use of the law. And just for time's sake, I, I don't want to get into it too deeply because there's just a, a massive amount of information. There's about six or seven pages worth of content here. And, and I want to do, I want to show it, uh, it's, it's importance. And so after we conclude this book 
uh, on this series. And you know, we're just working through the through the chapters, the eight chapters in this book. Once we conclude all that, then we will go back and hit these big topics like law gospel, and we'll spend a handful of weeks talking about that in hopes that we can help under get to the more basic understanding of how Lutherans and Reformed think when it comes to law and application. Because it's easy for us to produce a show and say, yeah, Christians have freedom and we, we are free from the law, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but without actually talking about the law, those episodes don't make sense. And so we will spend a, a, the appropriate amount of time needed in the, however many weeks it takes us to uh, work through those particular texts from scripture and from the Lutheran and Reformed faith. So stay tuned for that. I will not abandon this topic, I promise you. So there are two uh, particular practical applications of the third use that the Reformed hold to. Uh, It is worth noting that there are two ways in which the law leads to significant practical differences between the Lutherans and the Reformed. First, The second commandment in the Reformed numbering of the Decalogue is understood as forbidding the use of any images of Christ or any uh, pictorial representation of God. Uh, We'll talk about that more when we get to chapter 8 in the worship portion. Uh, But the central point is this. The literal stipulation of the command still applies, so the aesthetics found in the Roman Catholic Church or the Lutheran churches are absent from the Reformed equivalents. Today, of course, many Reformed churches meet in buildings that are not particularly built for Reformed worship, Uh, so the ideal uh, and reality may differ. The second is the fourth commandment, that on the Sabbath observance. This became a particular hallmark for the Reformed and Presbyterian church life. Uh, The Hallberg Heidenberg Catechism in question 103 clearly marks off Sunday as the day in which the absolute purity prior to priority for the Christian church is attendance for hearing the word, partaking in the sacraments, prayer, and giving of alms. The Westminster standards are somewhat more detailed in the prescription and due uh, to the way in which the Sabbatarianism came to function as a distinctive marker writ within the English church life in the latter part of the 16th century, inspired part by Nicholas uh, Bonin's The Doctrine of the Sabbath in 1595. So in conclusion, uh, the Reformed are indebted to Luther in his sharp articulation of the antithesis of the law and gospel and salvation. The law demands and convicts where the gospel promises and fulfills. As with justification, there is a basic fundamental agreement between both traditions in this point. Where the reform differ is in the articulation of the third law, which has a more robust role for that than what the Lutheran tradition holds to. The third use is the key to the practical expression in Christian identity. To a Lutheran, this might look like a legalistic, legalistic or pietistic view. To the Reformed, it is more than teaching of the New Testament where the logic of Paul's letters, in particularly, uh, is to move from being in Christ to acting like Christ, from the indicative to the imperative. These imperatives have a shape, specifically the shape of the conformity to the Decalogue. The Reformed avoid legalism by connecting this to the inward work of the Holy Spirit and the overall structure and the order of salvation. In an era like ours, when relativism rules and there is a significant ethical chaos in the wider world, there is a need for clear and coherent Christian ethic rooted both in salvation in Christ 
and in the moral framework provided by the Bible. Reformed theology by giving specific shape and content to the believer's response and salvation and identity in Christ offers a significant means to meeting this challenge. So that is uh, the next chapter on law and gospel in my wonderful little book. And uh, I, I hope you guys are enjoying this series. You know, like I said, I'm not reading through all this because that would be um, probably an ill use of my time. I just want to touch base on a couple of the major paragraphs that, you know, draw attention to certain concepts and differences and then provide commentary as I can through these works. And, uh, and I hope that you guys are enjoying this because uh, we're going to get into some interesting stuff, especially next week when we look at the person and work of Christ. We'll see some significant differences between the Lutheran and Reformed faith. So stay tuned as we continue to work through this book and uh, as we continue to look at the differences between the Lutheran and the Reformed faith and hopes that you guys will hopefully come to a better understanding of what Luther taught and believed versus what like the ELCA demonstrates or what you may have heard through the grapevine or you may have heard by some you know, Reformed author that has a distaste for Lutheranism. There's a lot of that out there, and I pray that you guys are, you know, would would listen and do more research on these particular topics than just taking my word for it or taking their words for it. So that's it, ladies and gentlemen. We'll be back Friday with another new episode. By the time this one airs, we'll probably be in another uh, book in the Old Testament. I have considered, and I probably might do this. I don't know yet because uh, we're I'm working through Malachi at this moment. It is the 7th of September as I record this show. I may transition to a New Testament book. I haven't decided yet uh, because I, I want to kind of take maybe a break from all of the Old Testament, all the minor prophets. We've been doing it for a long time now. We've been in this for uh, almost a year doing the least of these series. So uh, I, I would like to maybe transition maybe for a little bit and do a New Testament book. I haven't really kind of decided yet. Because uh, the last New Testament book we did was Revelation, and that was part of the eschatology series way back when. So that's uh, something I'm juggling. Um, but we will eventually work through every single book of the Bible on Friday's show. So that's that, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, have a great week. Don't forget Friday's show, and uh, we'll see you later. God bless. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.